Good morning, Trinity. My name is Jesse Robinson. I'm a pastor here at Trinity. If you're new or visiting, we are so glad that you are here. You students, isn't Bed Bath & Beyond wonderful? What <laughs> a great place. Um, if you're new, I would love to meet you right outside uh, to your left, my right, after the service in the courtyard group. So we're in the midst of a sermon series this August, highlighting our four ministry pillars of worship, community, spiritual formation, and mission, and mercy. And today is spiritual formation. Now we have a lot to do and so little time, so let's jump in. If you've got a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, or you can look on, on the screen or your bulletin. Colossians 1. This week, my kids started to cough. You know, it's just inevitable, like it's coming for you. And I woke, I woke up this morning, I'm usually a bass, like bass two for you choir people. And now I think I'm a bass like four, uh, maybe a very white. So anyway, Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this mystery, the glory of this mystery, Christ in us who believe in him. Lord, would you expound that mystery? Would our hearts see Jesus? Would we taste his glory even now in your word? In Christ's name we pray, amen. This morning I want to consider spiritual formation through the lens of fulfillment. Fulfillment. We as a culture are obsessed with fulfillment, right? We want to live a fulfilled life. We want to do what we are made to do and become who we were made to be. The American psychologist Abraham Maslow was deeply invested in this question of fulfillment. In his day, psychology was fixated on what was wrong with people, pathology. But Maslow thought that was literally wrong-headed. So he built a positive vision of human development. Like, what is good? What is health? You probably have seen a pyramid that's based on his hierarchy of human needs. His theory was that we need to fulfill every level of needs, each level, before we get to the very top. So at the very bottom, there was this need for food and water. On top of that came the need for safety. The third level was love and belonging. The fourth, self-esteem. And at the very top was self-actualization. That was to realize your full potential as a human being. 
he would write, a musician must make music, an artist must paint, a poet must write, if he is to be ultimately happy. What a man can be, he must be. And Maslow's hierarchy has become common sense, the intuitive route towards self-fulfillment in our culture. We need to fulfill each of these levels, right, to become who we truly are. These fundamental needs of love and belonging and esteem and self-actualization. Now, Colossians is also invested in fulfillment. In fact, verse 28 is a climax of, the, of our passage. And it says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And that word mature in the Greek, teleos, it means complete, fulfilled. Paul desires for everyone to be complete in Christ, to be fulfilled. But that prepositional phrase, in Christ, it carries with it a monumental paradigm shift. You see, to be fulfilled in Christ is a very different thing from Maslow's hierarchy. If you're new to the Christian faith or you're curious, I want you to see just how Christians think differently about fulfillment and about spiritual formation. And as we look at our text, we're going to see that fulfillment comes in being fully grown in Christ, following Him, fully knowing God's Word, and foretasting His glory. I'm going to say that again. Fulfillment comes in being fully grown in Christ, following Him, fully knowing God's Word, and foretasting His glory. So first, fulfillment comes through following Him. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's how the passage on fulfillment begins. I'm suffering, and isn't it marvelous? Now, Paul really did suffer. We know this. He was beaten with rods, flogged, stoned, shipwrecked. And as he writes Colossians, he's actually imprisoned. He's in prison. And yet he is rejoicing. So what does Paul know about suffering that we don't? And that was actually a huge problem for Maslow's hierarchy. This was among the critiques of Viktor Frankl. Frankl was another psychologist, and yet Frankl spent three years in Nazi concentration camps. He, every member of his family died. And after the war, Frankl critiqued Maslow's theory. He would, his grandson would explain, quote, Abraham Maslow, in his hierarchy of needs, said that once, once basic needs, food, shelter, are met, then the intangibles, such as love, meaning, and self-actualization can be fulfilled. But my grandfather, that is Frankel, disagreed. He told Maslow how people did not have their basic needs met in the concentration camps. But it was the higher needs, meaning, love, and values, that pre proved to be much more relevant to their chance of survival. My grandfather emphasized that it's not about having what you need to live, but asking yourself, what am I living for? What am I living for? It's not about asking, what do you need to live? But what are you living for? You hear the difference in that? And it's interesting, because the most affluent societies that have all their basic needs met, and yet they are spiritually malnourished. They are hungry for meaning. So what is Paul, the author of Colossians, living for? 
he tells us. He says in the rest of verse 24, And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. In other words, he is suffering for Jesus. Now let me say that lacking in Christ's afflictions, this does not mean that the cross was not enough for Paul. In fact, that's just the opposite of what Paul would say. Every, the whole New Testament is the cross is sufficient. Paul does not mean that. But to explain what he means, we need to back up and understand something about Paul's life. You see, in his pre-Christian life, Paul persecuted the Christians. And then you might know the story. On the road to Damascus, the Lord interrupts, intervenes in his life. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the Lord then commissions Saul with these words. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now from this experience, Paul takes away two lessons. First, that persecuting the church was persecuting Jesus. Do you hear that? And that means that there must be some mystic, like mysterious union between Jesus and his people. That if you hurt me, you hurt Jesus. What Jesus was saying. That's where Paul's whole theology of union with Christ comes from. He, he mentions this 216 times in various different ways throughout his writings. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. The second thing that Jesus, that Paul learned, is that Jesus had suffered and that Paul would have to suffer too. That suffering actually would prove that Paul was a disciple of Jesus. That he was following Jesus. You see, Paul could rejoice in his sufferings because his sufferings made sense to him. And you know why they made sense? Because he was living for Jesus. He lives to make Jesus' name great. He wants his life to look like his master. And so he interprets his whole life and sufferings in these cross-centered, suffering-saturated terms. He rejoices because he is in Christ. And because he believes that Jesus, when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will, sake will save it. He knows that if Jesus' sufferings were followed by resurrection, that his would be too. Do you see this discipleship that, you, that Paul is demonstrating for us? Following Jesus leads to forsaking your life for his sake because you know that this is actually the path to life. You see, those who grasp white-knuckled onto their ambitions for life, the degrees, the achievements, the relationships, the money, and comfort and prestige will actually end up losing it all. They'll end up losing it. Frankel would say, the real aim of human existence cannot be found in what is called self-actualization. Human existence is essentially self-transcendence. He says self-actualization is not a possible aim at all for the simple reason that the more you strive for it, the more you'll miss it. The more you want to fulfill yourself, the more you're going to miss it. Which is exactly what Jesus said. If you want to gain your life, give it away. Now why does Paul, why can Paul say, I rejoice in my suffering? You see, we can suffer 
We can suffer if we think that the end is good. There are so many women in here who have had children. I've seen the pain of childbirth. And most of you women would say it's worth it, right? Why is that suffering worth it? Because of the good that you see will come of it. The love. And Paul has a love that is so great. His love for Jesus is so great that this suffering, this is nothing for him. It's worth it. In fact, he can rejoice because he knows that his life is actually manifesting Jesus. Friends, let me speak personally here. We are far less in control of our sanctification than we imagine. Do you know one of the principal ways that God sanctifies us, that he forms us? It's through suffering. It's through suffering. Because it's in suffering that we realize where our hope truly is. I became a pastor in the middle of a pandemic. And I had no idea that being a pastor would be such, so tumultuous. I had all these ambitious dreams. And, and it's the Lord has stripped that away. I've seen just how idolatrous my life, my ambitions truly are. That they're not about Jesus and serving him, but they're more about my ambitions, about what I want. That's what suffering does to us. It strips us away. And when we are in that place, the best thing to do is to rejoice. Because it means that God is actually cleansing you, purifying you, making you a true disciple of Jesus. That's what it means to follow Christ. One more point on this. I want you to see the implications for the church. You see, Paul is afflicted, it says, quote, for the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul is suffering for the sake of his church. And that makes sense if he understands his, his life in terms of Christ, right? Who did Christ die for? The church. Because he loves it. And so Paul is eager to give his life away to the church because that's what Jesus did. That's what following Jesus is. Friends, how many of us are ready to suffer for the church, for each other? If we love Christ, you cannot follow Jesus without loving the church. Students, you cannot love Jesus without loving the church. That leads us to the second point. So fulfillment comes through following Jesus, and fulfillment is fully knowing God's word. Now Paul gets personal in verse 25. He's describing his personal mission. So at the end of 24, he says, For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister or a servant according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. To make the word of God fully known. That's Paul's ministry, his service. So what does that mean? What is the word of God? Now we might think that that means scripture right but there is no new testament at this time paul's writing the new testament so what does he mean on verse 26 he says he says what he means he says it's this mystery that's once hidden but has now been revealed so the word of god is the mystery what is the mystery he says in verse 27 he says to the saints god chose to make known how great among the gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Friends, the word of God fully known that Paul is preaching 
is this, Christ in you. That's his message. He's preaching Christ in us. Now, let me explain. You can think of the whole Old Testament as God pursuing union with his people. God trying to dwell with his people. At the very beginning of everything, God is dwelling with Adam and Eve. He's walking in the cool of the day. But as you know, they reject him. And all the Old, New, all the Old Testament institutions, the sacrifices, the dietary laws, the tabernacle, and the temple, the priesthood, the prophets, the kings, they were all intended to enable God to dwell with his people. That's, what, that's all their purpose was, that God could be with his people. Actually, one particular people, right? The Jews. The Jews. And yet the whole story of the Old Testament is Israel rejecting God. We don't want you. We want to do things our way. So when Paul says mystery, though, he means the Old Testament had some Easter eggs. I know that not all of us understand, not real Easter eggs, right? Like these, these kind of symbols, these signs that, that, that are hidden. Because it's hinted that God was going to come in person in the Old Testament. It's hinted that God wanted to dwell with all peoples. That he was dissatisfied with just having the Jews. He wanted the whole world. And so Paul's saying, there's this mystery in the Old Testament that in Jesus is absolutely thrown up, uncovered. This is the will of God, that all people would be saved. That all people would, would know Jesus. That's the mystery. Really, friends, the word of God that Paul is making fully known, it's, it's just another word for the gospel. He refers to the gospel earlier in Colossians as the word of the truth. But look here in verse 27. How does he define the gospel again? See, three little words, Christ in you. That is the gospel I am making fully known, he says. The God who made you, who can fulfill you, you can have fellowship with him. That's fulfillment, he says. That's fulfillment, and that's worth me suffering for. Paul is suffering because he wants everyone to know that God can dwell with them in Christ. We so often think of the gospel as Jesus dying for our sins, or what's called atonement, or dying that we might be righteous in his sight. That's called justification. But here Paul highlights another dimension of the gospel, union with Christ. And that's actually the point of atonement, of justification. It is union. I don't want you to miss this. You see, your God wants to know you. That's the point of everything. It's absolutely the point of everything, is to know God. Jesus would say at this point, the night before he died, he would say, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what salvation is. It is knowing God. I remember I had just graduated from college. I was doing a, a missions trip in Taiwan. And as I was praying with the Lord, I got really, really sick. I got dehydrated. I had to go to an ER, a Taiwanese ER, which was terrifying. I lived. Spoiler. 
Um, so as I was praying in Taiwan, I had this, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I was a history major. I never thought of earning money in my life. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do, right? And I remember this moment. I was reading J.I. Packard's Knowing God. And all of a sudden, the Spirit used that book to show me what is the meaning of my life. That if I could just know God, that was all I needed. I, I remember thinking, I could be a janitor. And that's fine. If I know God. By the way, I'd be a terrible janitor. My wife can tell you that. But friends, life is about knowing God. That's what Paul is giving his entire life to. And he says that in verse 20, 28. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone fulfilled in Christ. Paul's heart is that everyone would be fulfilled. That everyone would know the God who made them because that is what they're made for. Friends, our spiritual formation has to push us into mission. Otherwise, we don't really know Jesus. Anytime that you spend time with Jesus, he is constantly going to push you towards others. You see it all the time in Scripture. We are made to fully know the Word of God. And remember, fully know the Word of God. Who else is the Word of God? Jesus. Jesus. The key to fulfillment is not self-actualization, nor is it self-transcendence. It is to know and be known by God. Let's go to our third point. Fulfillment is foretasting His glory. Now, Paul uses the term glory twice. In verse 27, he says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The first use modifies the mystery. Paul is saying, isn't it glorious how God has chosen to make his glory known to the whole world? It's a stunning act of grace. No one deserves to know God. No one deserves to know God. We've all rejected. We want to be God. That is the human impulse, is to want to be God. But there's another glory here. The Christ in you is actually the hope of glory. The gospel is a down payment on more glory. And it's, when we, when we think hope, this is not your hope like, I hope it will come true. Like, I hope it won't rain tomorrow. No, this hope is sure, is confident. It's like, I hope that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. It will, unless the Lord comes back. That, that's what this hope is sure. And what Christ is, the Christ in you, the hope of glory, that means that there is glory for anyone who loves Jesus. You will be glorified with the glory that God himself emanates out of him. Glory is that quality of God that is most uniquely His, and He promises to share it with whoever loves and cherishes Him. And friends, God's glory is the only thing that will satisfy and fulfill you. It is. That's what you're made for. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. It means that you hunger for God's glory. We sang this in Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, 
O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Friends, glory is what spiritual formation is all about. And another letter from Paul. He writes this incredible phrase. He says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Isn't that astounding? How, how do you change? Do humans really change? Do, can people really change? The answer is yes. And you know how they change most radically? When they look at God. When they see his glory. It is as we look at God that we actually behold and taste God's glory. That we are transformed. Now this is always with the eyes of faith. right? Paul later on in 2 Corinthians is, says, We walk by faith and not by sight. But it is looking at the Lord in our heart through the eyes of faith. Two decades or so, psychologist Dr. Aaron was investigating a science of love. He wanted to know, how can you make two strangers fall in love? Now, I think this is a terrible study, but I'm going to use it for this illustration. Um, one of the most interesting results was the power of eye contact. Aaron would have the two strangers stare silently into each other's eyes for four minutes. Four minutes. And one of the couples, six months later, strangers got married. Um, several follow-up trials have confirmed this, this power of eye contact, this sight. And one couple had been married for 55 years. And, and the wife said, in 55 years of marriage, We've never really looked into each other's eyes like that, said one, said one woman to her husband at the end of the four minutes. When I look at you really closely, I realize how much I need you and what you mean to me, because that's the truth, her husband later says to her. Friends, when we see God's glory, it transforms us. We love him because Unlike any human person that we can gaze into their eyes, God is ultimately worthy of all the glory. And he is pure love. There is no guile in those eyes as you look at him. And as you look at Jesus, this is the one who gave his very life that we might have life, that we might be fulfilled. Now I want to end with seven distinctives of Christian spiritual formation, okay? I know I just gave you three points, and I'm going to give you seven, but they're real quick, okay? Just, just pick one you like. <laughs> first, and it's going to go pretty quick. Spiritual formation is first and foremost about communing with God. I know a lot of us have spiritual practices. We try to read our Bible. We pray. But if it's not about knowing God, and it is all in vain. George Mueller, the 19th century, he, he started all these orphanages. All these orphanages. He has this devotional. And he said, Before this time, my practice has been, at least for 10 years previously, as a habit to give myself the prayer every morning. 
after having dressed this morning. But now I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the Word of God and the meditation on it. That thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that thus whilst med meditation, my heart might be brought into experimental communion with the Lord. Friends, I hate, first of all, I hate the term quiet time because you better not be quiet. You, you need to be speaking to the Lord. But friends, the point of it is to know the Lord, is to have your heart moved on, is to feel affection and stay there as long as you can until you feel that, until you've broken through to the Lord to hear him. Second point, spiritual formation is discipleship. It is a cross-driven laying down of our lives to service to Jesus. It is forsaking of our life. Third point, Jesus uses suffering to mature us. We think that we can control our spiritual life. You can't. Just wait till you suffer. The church is the necessary context of growth. He says the body of Christ, which is the church. Friends, you cannot grow in Christ if you are not connected to the church. And this is really important because COVID has demolished we have live strings, people listening to sermons. That is not sanctification. Sanctification is doing life together. It's the church. And we have a responsibility to care for each other. Right? Uh, Paul uses the same words. He says teaching and admonishing so we can present everyone uh, mature in Christ. He uses those same two words later on in Colossians 3.16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. In other words, we have to do that to each other, speaking God's word to each other. Number five, we grow by knowing God's word. I already said this. This is about knowing Jesus. Number six, spiritual formation is never passive. Let's look at verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Some of us are just lazy. And we need to get off our butts and pursue the Lord. It takes energy. Paul is laying down his life. And finally, spiritual refers to the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who is working in Paul and working in us. At Trinity, we have a very specific Christian meaning when we say spiritual formation. Because we believe that God, once you believe in, in Jesus, that his spirit is at work in us. And he will be faithful to the very end to complete the work that he is doing. Amen? Amen? And for us, spiritual formation is nothing less than pursuing the Lord with all we have. That we might love God with all our heart and our soul and our minds. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would form us by your spirit. Oh Lord, we need your grace. For those of us whose love has gone cold, would you warm their hearts? Would you show them your salvation? Would we fix our eyes every morning this week on the Lord who gave his life for us? And would we fall more in love with him? We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.